Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And over the years and years and years and years past, I would usually start this episode off with the Eisenhower speech before the D-Day landings. And I actually had it prepped, I'm not going to lie to you, but we got so tangled up in what we're doing that we said, hey, let's just change things up a little bit. And uh, speaking of changing things up a little bit, we're all back together as one big happy family. Joining us as always, Mr. Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how you doing tonight, sir? Great. Happy 78th anniversary of D-Day. And Mr. Henry Sledge, how you doing, sir? Fantastic. <clears throat> Good to be here on, on June 6th. How could it be more appropriate? And uh, I'll give you the honors, uh, Mr. Jeff Copsetta. Who is our guest we have tonight? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, was thinking about how do we do a proper anniversary uh, episode about that day of days. And, you know, uh, we have some friends over there right now in Normandy, uh, you know, hanging out there and, and talking to some of the few veterans left. And must be nice. it kind of got me thinking, you know, how, ma- how many of these guys are, are really left? And, uh, you know, they're, they're really starting to fade quick. And, and we talk about that a lot. And, and it's our job as reenactors and through this podcast and everything else that we do in our lives, you know, to, to dedicate to the greatest generation that uh, we, we got to keep their stories alive. And what better to keep their stories alive than than the family members uh, of those who have served? So tonight we have a really, really special guest. He he uh, I've met him a few months ago. He's become a really good friend of mine. We're going to really get some work done. Uh, here in the next couple months, I'll let him talk about that. But um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ricky Todd uh, Kearsley, who had uh, multiple uh, relatives serve uh, in World War II, both European and Pacific theater. But uh, I think the one we wanted to talk to or talk about tonight is his uh, is his uncle Wash. So without further ado, RT, thanks for being here, man. This is really cool. Like I said, very fitting way to celebrate uh, D-Day with us tonight. Welcome aboard, sir. Wow. Thank you so much. Y'all are awesome. Um, I really, I really admire the work that you're doing to keep things alive, to keep the awareness going of, you know, what actually happened uh, and the people that were involved that did that in the greatest generation that uh, laid the foundation for where we are today as far as Americans and not just that the free world, as far as that's concerned. And uh, as we see in Ukraine and other places, the free struggle for the free world continues. Yep. And uh, and and without relent, and uh, we we are relentless as far as our uh, quest for freedom. Um, my name is R- Ricky Todd Kearsley. Uh, my aunt and uncle were over there in Europe in uh, Britain before the D-Day invasion. Uh, I'm making a film that's around as their lives and that time period. And uh, the things that happened, the pivotal changes uh, as far as, you know, um, our quest for freedom against the Axis powers. And also, in, coupled with that, the quest for freedom and the quest for uh, justice within the United States and the evolution of what became the civil rights movement and other things that happened with that that were coupled. Um, the foundation of that, I truly believe, and my family members were attest- testified to, is the military was the great equalizer, as it was proclaimed. 
and because all advancement and for the first time all you know a positive or negative or whatever uh, uh, assessment of a person's performance in their job was solely based upon their service and solely based upon what they brought in uh, in, in 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 the line of duty um my aunt was my dad's older sister my aunt corinne was her name her, her given name corinne kearsley uh her nickname was choo choo she was about five foot four five foot five and uh she was a sergeant at fort dix new jersey when my uncle uncle wash was uh going my future uncle wash was going through basic training and all six foot three of him uh nice. from from virginia she was from new york see tall guys and, did uh, exist back then i'm six pardon? foot five i said see tall guys did exist back then i'm six foot five i go on all these reenactments <laughs> you're too tall well, they would have never had five, you in the, the service generation yeah <laughs> but yeah i'm always told you're too tall as we go go through this procession of generations <laughs> it's all these preservatives but anyway make a long story short they met uh, initially in Fort Dix, uh, they made impression and impression impressions upon each other, and then um, months later, over the, over in England, they met again, uh, and uh, right before the the invasion, and uh, that kind of sealed the deal with them, I guess, the second encounter, and uh, he was assigned to, and this is as per my uh, my, my cousins, he was a, he was a pathfinder, uh, he was assigned to a pathfinder units, I think back then that you were assigned to units based upon your skills. It wasn't the thing like they do now as far as requests, like, you know, I want to do this or I want to do that. They told you what you were going to do. Mm -hmm. And based upon his athletic ability and his other uh, 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 abilities, he was he was given uh, the MOS uh, of being a Pathfinder. Anyway, the movie that I'm making, uh, it's called Eureka Beacons. Uh, after the Eureka Beacon transceivers that Pathfinders uh, deployed over in Normandy to guide the lead aircraft with the Rebecca receivers that were located inside of them to the drop zones for the 101st and the 82nd Airborne Brigades behind lines in Normandy. Um, and the thing is that I have been engaging with certain uh, uh, organizations and with certain individuals. Uh, today, as Jeff had uh, mentioned, uh, some very good friends of ours, new friends of mine. Jeff has known these uh, uh, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, for a real long time. The Liberty Jumpers. Yep. Uh, jumped in Normandy uh, at the actual drop zones where the original uh, uh, um, airborne troops were actually drop zones where they were actually deployed. And uh, they do that on a commemorative basis every year and have for a very long time. Jeff would know more about it than I. How long have they been doing that, Jeff? I, I think since the 60th anniversary, I want to say 04, I thought was their first jump, but I, I could be mistaken. Wow. That's a long time. That's awesome. Now, but, uh, one of the questions yeah. I have, do you, uh, does airborne beget pathfinders or do you get, you know, do you become, when he said he was, a, he basically was assigned to become a pathfinder. Was he, or had he already enlisted as a airborne or did he just right out of boot camp and said, Hey, you're going to pathfinder. We're going to send you to he jump was, school. He was in. He was in. He was an air. He was trained as an airborne uh, infantry, and then once he got out of air, I believe after once he got out of airborne infantry uh, uh, training at a jump school, he uh, they 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 assigned him to that. I believe, from what from what I know, 
Okay, and I don't know a lot. Sure, I just know I just know what my cousins have told me. Who uh, they were part of a military, or you know, their military family that traveled with him. It's just interesting to try to think what what skill set. I mean, obviously, airborne is the best of the best. They're the elite of the elite. You know, at, at that time, <laughs> you just wonder. Okay, you got this group of guys who who made the cut. They actually made it through airborne school and training, which we all know had a high dropout rate. <laughs> what uh, it's just crazy to think. What elite skill set that he have above the rest of these guys? I said, you, <laughs> you're going to the even more elite of the elite. Come with us. It's just it's something like that. Just kind of crazy to think about. It's like this guy was such a badass. He was he was taken to be from the well, group of guys who's going to be behind you know, you know, enemy Don, lines. You're going to get even further. No, he's <laughs> right. Sometimes the army works like this. Uh, you, 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 you. Let's go. Right. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Or as his family would and like to believe, he was a bigger game. badass than the rest. <laughs> <laughs> they sent him out. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I must make an, an addendum. I know the, our, our our main topic and focus is uh, is D Day and uh, uh, no worries and operate and 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 the D Day operations. Um, subsequently, um, in 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 the Korean conflict, he was a uh, he was an airborne ranger. Uh, in 1954, he went to Indochina as an, uh, one of the first advisors to uh, what became the Military Assistance Command Vietnam uh, and and and, and uh, Special Operations Group. And then subsequently, he was one of the first cadre of NCOs that trained and became the Green Berets. He ETS exited his term of service as a Green Beret Master Sergeant. As I said, he was the badass of the badasses. See, I was right. <laughs> the, the thing <laughs> that that's is a really long, funny about my uncle is he was career. just really big bear of a fun – he's kind of like a Yogi Bear kind of guy. He's like, hey, boo-boo, hey, boo-boo. you know, kind of. Got a picnic um, basket. I remember in going to visit my, 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 uh, my aunt and uncle on holidays. We were up in uh, – they settled eventually in Rochester, New York. And uh, being in the backyard, um, shooting um, cans of uh, uh, gum out carburetor cleaner <laughs> with tracer bullets and nice. watching them explode <laughs> when I was a preteen. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's getting raised right. <laughs> right? No, that, that's awful specific. Not WD-40, not break clean, gum out. <laughs> Has a higher explosive uh, content to it. That's fantastic. I just yeah, that's yeah. just such a long. Not only is that such a long career, that's such a long career in a over physically beat up <laughs> roles. I mean, all those years of jumping out of planes and doing special special forces type operations. That's just a long haul and over multiple different campaigns. It's just crazy. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because one of the uh, folk, one of the um, the focuses of the foci of the uh, of the film that I'm tr- that I'm producing is this, and it's in the script. It's also in the treatment. Basically, um, here let me get a copy of this real quick. Oh, you know what? I gave that away. But um, it basically because when he got it, went into the, went into the army when he when he enlisted, he was just this quiet, big, quiet, sweet kid from Virginia, from, you know, rural Virginia. And it's the, it, it's, this is the big, part of this story is his metamorphosis from this big, sweet, innocent kid 
into this professional, you know, uh, uh, NCO leader, um, fighter, uh, um, and and I hate to have to almost say it. I hope my cousins don't 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 uh, take offense to this, but uh, you know, train basically uh, assassin, you know, and being able to disassociate and being able to compartmentalize that between the needs of duty and still be able to be that sweet guy that my aunt fell in love with. Sure. As anybody in that position has had to, uh, to navigate and, 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 and juxtapose and juggle. And, uh, that's part of the story, you know, as far as that's concerned. Um, and as, uh, you know, and the thing is that the whole nature of being thrust from, okay, you're over there, you're in England, you're in a safe place. Yes, you're training, you're training hard, you're doing this. All of a sudden, you're across the channel, you're in enemy territory, okay? And you're waiting for the rest of your force to uh, to, to, to come. You have the signals uh, to, to guide them to where they need to be. And you're standing by to stand by, you know, in harm's way, in enemy territory until they get there. And then you have to fight your way all the way through Europe to, uh, to, to, to earn your, your ticket back home. And next to you, to your left, to your right, your friends are dying of being maimed beyond recognition and all that goes along with that. And somehow, some way, you're coming through relatively unscathed on the outside, but you bear the scars of that on the inside. And, uh, you know, it's, it's um, the story of, so, of, 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 you know, million, hundreds of thousands, technically millions of Americans, you know, in all the theaters of operation that we had. And uh, so... You know, RT, you, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit before about these, uh, you know, the title of your film, Eureka Beacons, and, and I'm just going to to assume, and I, I think it's a safe assumption, that there's listeners out there that have no idea uh, exactly what these beacons were. And I, I know you don't maybe know exactly what uh, your Uncle Wash did, but can you give a little bit of an overview of uh, what, what the Pathfinders had to do? You know, you mentioned kind of going in, uh, behind enemy lines, and and this is before even uh, the 82nd and, and 101st jumped in. So, can you give kind of a brief overview of that technical skill that these pathfinders did, and, and how important it was to Operation Overlord? Absolutely. Thanks, thanks, Jeff. Yes, the Eureka beacons were microwave devices that had been developed by the Allies originally for the uh, deployment and the, the uh, distribution of supplies to the French underground and to other underground organizations and to covert uh, operators that were operating in Europe uh, with the C-47 aircraft. The Eureka Beacon system was a, system, was a combination of two different devices. One was the Eureka Beacon itself, which was a basically a transmitter with an antenna it transmitted in in the baseband frequency of approximately 200, uh, 200 megahertz, I believe. And what it did was it it was a transceiver. It transmitted 
a signal, and it also received a signal. So the C-47, which was the American cargo aircraft at the time, was fitted with what was called a Rebecca receiver, a Rebecca receiver. And the Rebecca receiver was a was transceiver that would receive on the same frequency of the Eureka beacon and then retransmit back to the Eureka beacon. And what it did was it closed the gap and it measured the distance between the receiver and the transmitter. So the pilot inside the C-47 would know how far he was away from the drop zone where he was going to drop his supplies, or in this case, later with the airborne, his paratroops. So the uh, the job of the pathfinders, which was pivotal to the uh, success or failure of the D-Day invasion, was this. They had, I believe it was eight teams of pathfinders with Eureka Beacon uh, transmitters that jumped into the gener- the uh, drop zones that were going to be used for not only the airborne, but also the glider-based troops that were coming from England across mm-hmm. the English Channel. And so what happened was the night before the D-Day invasion, these teams, these eight teams of Pathfinders were dropped into Normandy into their respective sectors where they were supposed to mark their drop zones for the D-Day invasion, set up their Eureka beacons, and at a particular time synchronized, turn their Eureka beacons on because the battery life only lasted so long on the actual Eureka beacon transceiver. And so they would have a specialist that was a Eureka beacon specialist and someone who, who assisted them and the rest, there was an officer with them. And then the rest were troops that were uh, there to maintain security on the perimeter of, of, the, uh, of the drop zone where the Eureka Beacon was deployed to keep the enemy from getting to it. Now, did the Eureka Beacon, what did it broadcast? Was it like a tone like an aliens when the aliens were in the ceiling just got louder the closer they got? Or was it static? Obviously, they don't want to. I would assume they didn't just broadcast in English, hey, you're on your way, because the Germans might pick it up. What what was right. it actually broadcasting? It was, a, it was a series, like it is back then, it was a series of tones. It was a totally analog device. Sure. It was a tube-driven, tube power supply. Uh, and the thing is that it the, the, the actual micro, the, uh, the, the RF radio frequency signal that it actually put out was a set of tones and the thing is that the tones would get stronger and the frequency would uh would would become uh uh uh, um narrower as they the rebecca transmitter uh the rebecca receiver in the c-47 approached the actual eureka beacon almost like a metal detector sounds like yeah very similar very very similar actually excellent analogy yep excellent analogy jeff yes you know it's so funny you say tube driven a lot of our a lot of our listeners are going to be too young to remember this because everything's solid state now but that just goes to show you how much how delicate these things were could you imagine like jumping out on an airplane with your dad's like 1965 base amp <laughs> and not break those tubes and have that thing work when you like that's, that's a really good that's an awesome analogy <laughs> yeah it's like anybody yeah. who's had a guitar amp or a bass amp because my dad was in a band in the 70s and he had like custom bass amps and all these guitar amps and right. they all had tubes in them you could turn them on you'd see them that glow the thought of that thing 
and that goes to show they probably had to wrap the hell out of it with something to help soften the blow if that thing came down too hard and, and break those tubes. And well, well, hopefully the ones Surely in my haversack, assuming they it didn't had break an either. <laughs> bag that they had yeah. they used to deploy it. It was specially designed for the actual uh, for the for for the actual transceiver for the uh, for for the set. It was a box about gay big. And it was in a uh, like a canvas uh, bag. I have a, had a picture of one. When it comes to um, planning out your movie, kind of your screenplay, um, you know, the Pathfinders isn't something that everybody and their grandmother presents content about. How did you go a- about researching and getting all the information and the details for writing your your storyline and your your script? I'm still doing some of the research. Um, I basically found a lot of stuff online. Um, let's see. I also uh, have a friend of mine who uh, he was in Bosnia and he was an airborne ranger in Pathfinder, mind you, in modern day. Sure. Uh, I got some, a lot of information from him. He was a real. He was my. He was my best friend's uh, younger brother when we were growing up, and uh, he was stationed at uh, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Gotcha. So I got a lot of information from him, um, and the rest of it, I pretty much it's available. Uh, if it, you know, if you go online, you can read it. Just just type in Eureka Beacons, and uh, there are a number of different uh, uh, links that'll take you to information. They even make re uh, remanufactured, uh, uh, reissued Eureka Beacons that you can actually buy that reenactment groups actually uh, utilize. Very cool. What? If, do you feel comfortable? What's the working title of the project if you're ready to release that sort of thing? Oh, no. The working title is called uh, – work. it's working title, uh, colon, Eureka Beacons. Um, I've thought about shortening it to Beacons um, because, you know, just because of the nature of, you know, something a beacon, something that uh, – um, like in, in, in aviation, you've got, uh, uh, you know, the beacon light. At an aircraft, an airport, sure. you know the green and white light that spins around. So you know it's it's a point of um, uh, uh, it's a nexus of things where yeah. things so come must... together, converge, or or draws attention. Some you know like a beacon, like you know like uh, you know similar to like a lighthouse. Yeah, it could be semi metaphorical as well. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. Well, what... but it's uh, the working title is Eureka Beacons, and. Um, I'm basically financing this out of my pocket. Uh, I, I have a pretty, I have an okay financial shovel. I work as a broadcast engineer. I'm uh, sorry. I do, um, I do, huh? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. No, I'm just, no, no, I, I, I worked I, in I, terrestrial I work radio for sports. six years. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> I work in, I work in network sports. I do, I do at this point in my career, I'm, I'm, I'm do, I do golf. And uh, the importance of sports in uh, in broadcast is inversely proportionate to the size of the ball. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> golf being the pinnacle, <laughs> so I get paid take taken care of pretty well. So I'm putting my money into uh, into making this film. Are people still doing like the kickstarters and things for movies? I know that was bigger back in the day. Yeah, they're doing that, and and I'm I'm gonna do a GoFundMe, but I'm not gonna publish the GoFundMe and put and put that accentuate that until I finish shooting the short. Yeah, and the short's gonna cost. I was just it's it's gonna it's probably gonna cost between thirty and sixty grand. So you know. 
I'm going to put what I'm going to put into it. Um, I do have several things in my favor. Uh, I have, I've, I'm an aerial photographer with about 20 years of experience. Nice. So I started shooting news for Fox and for, uh, and for NBC in New York back before the, uh, turn of the millennium back before we had drones for a period of time. Then I got into sports in 2003. Fantastic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fully versed in doing that and have done a lot of production over the, uh, over the decades with, uh, you know, with what I do. I originally started music when I got out of, when I got out of college, uh, I used to tour with large bands doing audio. So I have a full, uh, and then I ended up being a recording engineer in New York and then nine 11 happened while I was there. And, uh, and I got downsized into doing TV. Yeah. Hey, can I jump in real quick? Absolutely. Uh, Ricky Todd, is this, is that you right there? I've never seen that man before in my life. No, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to put in a plug for our guest here. Ricky Todd, I listened to your album today at work. You did? Yes, I did. And I was very <laughs> oh impressed. Oh, my God, really? I love, I'm a music guy, man. And I, Jeff was coming over the wire talking about asking you to come on. I'm like, so I started kind of looking you up because I like to know who's coming on, you know, so I can be somewhat wow. first and, and i listen to music on spotify usually punk rock heavy metal that kind of stuff <laughs> but i saw you on there and i'm like that's that's the guy man and then your biopic it looks like you're sitting in the cockpit of a b25 or something b17 it's a b17 okay yeah, well that that's aluminum overcast yeah okay. that's aluminum overcast um there's a story behind that my aunt, um, the one I was telling you about, my dad's eldest sister, the uh, one who's 99 years old. Yeah. During World War II, she worked at Republic Aircraft in Long Island and uh, built wire and built P-51 Mustangs. Wow. Okay. So anybody who's worked on P-51 Mustangs gets a free ride in a B-17 by the Eastern Aeronautical Association because they basically said, well, if you didn't do your job, this airplane wouldn't be here. Sure. Yeah. Probably. Wow. Well, I'm I'm serious. It's a good album. I listened to every bit of it and you, I enjoyed it. Thank you. What genre of music would you say it is for Country our Country music, man. Country music. Isn't that right, RT? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where do I live? I live in Austin, Texas. I got I'm I'm from I, you know, I grew up in a little hick town at the end of a dirt road. And uh yes, I used to teach people how to ride horses a long time ago. Um but uh, <clears throat> I met a girl um, my, my, I, when I was a senior in high school. Was it Laura Ann? Yep. Well, no, her dad was the, was the chief defense camp. Her dad at the time was the chief judge advocate at West Point. Okay. And, uh, I followed her down to Austin. I got here as soon as I could. Well, the name of the album is Without You Guys. Give it a spin. It's a good album. Not to check that out. So, we'll, we'll, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there. But no, no, no. You're hey, more than welcome. Hammer, you're awesome. You're more than welcome you to jump in. To Bobby Sledge? No, sir. He lives in Austin. He's a, he's an old friend of mine. Okay, not that I know of. We'll include okay. the link on the uh, website wtspworldwar2.com. Uh, yeah, I'm not just saying that, man. It's a damn good album. I listened to it at work today and enjoyed it thoroughly. What, what may I ask you? What, what was your favorite song? Uh, let me see. I got it right here. I would say I thought one more minute. The first cut. Really? Was, yeah. I, I just like the rhythm. That's about that. I used to, when I was trying it, when I got out of uh, doing um, sound reinforcement, doing music stuff, my first yeah. job in television was I drove a tractor trailer 
that pulled a satellite trailer behind it back when they were that big before they had miniaturized everything. Yeah. Like 1988. In fact, I came home from doing a fight in uh, Las Vegas and uh, my Laura Ann, her Lori's uh she goes, she goes by a different name. So we'll keep that because mm-hmm. uh, out of the media, but um, she, her water broke. Right after I got to, we went out to dinner at Taco Cabana. That was one of our play, favorite places to go and eat <laughs> back in the back in the eighties, back here in Austin when it was still the sleepy little uh, college town that it was. You know, yeah. Thank, uh, man, you made y'all are making mine. Not- I I was hoping because I was like, man, I may be stepping in here. He's about to put his foot in his mouth. Know, live. Looks like Ricky Todd, and then <laughs> he used to work at Intel. my wife would say i have nothing to do with intelligence (laughs) oh i know better i know better than that (laughs) do you have any uh social media footprints people can go check out to get an update on your project and uh, how it's coming along yes i do um i have the url i secured the url for eurekabeacons.com and uh i am in the present I am in the uh, process, rather, of building a website with all of the information from Eureka Beacons and all of the production notes from Eureka Beacons. Um, I've worked here. I want to pull something up, and I'll just show you on my phone. Sure. Um, I work as a video engineer uh, on the side from the company that I work for. I actually work for a large company that builds stuff. Um, But the thing is that um, and the company I work for is, uh, it's called Diversified Systems. They're, they're a very large systems integration company. I'm actually an electrical engineer uh, nice. uh, that, by education. And I'm That's a my father is. engineer for them. Uh, here in Austin, one of our projects, a couple of projects, we built the Q2 Stadium, did all the broadcast systems integration and uh, large uh, uh, um, jumbotron, uh, you know, um, monitors and all the other stuff there we just finished building the moody center at the university of texas at austin to replace the frank Irwin center which is soon going to be imploded uh uh and they're going to expand medical school there we did all the broadcast systems integration there um we also uh did all of the rf and all the broadcast systems integration at the circuit of the americas racetrack um the thing is that what was, what was the point I was trying to get to? I think my train of thought got derailed. Uh, hold on. All right. I work as a video engineer freelance for a couple of different uh, organizations and stuff on the side. And one of the things that we do um, here, I'll, I'll show you. This is one of the, uh, let's see, I want to not get too far off track, but I did want to show you this for Eureka Beacons. I happened to be working in one of the screening rooms. Uh, I worked the South by Southwest Film Festival. Sure. And, uh, you know, as and, and also being a filmmaker, I just kind of always have my ears kind of perked up. You know, it's like paying attention, you know, trying to, uh, you know, just be there at the right time in the right place. And I happened to be in the screening room for this one particular production. It's a new show on Netflix called The Man Who Fell to Earth. Okay. The female lead in that production was a woman named Naomi Harris. Naomi Harris was in the movies Skyfall and Spectre. She's a Bond girl. Mm -hmm. And that's her. Nice. And me. We met 
and I'm he uh, I told her about my my uh, my uh, treatment and that I'm working on a short and uh, a feature. And she had her agent there and she told her agent to give me her email address. Um, another person that was in that production is somebody who I really liked as an actor. And uh, he was on another uh, show called Westworld. Yep. He was also in House of Cards. Okay. A guy named Jimmy Simpson. Oh, yeah. There's- and he did the same thing. I told him about my production. And he gave me his agent's information. Fantastic. So I'm confident that if I can do a real good job producing this thing and knocking out of the park as far as the short is concerned, I'll be able to get funding to actually make the feature. And what I really would like to do after the feature, I'd like to spin this off into a series. There you go. Just put Jeff on the poster and you're good to go. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, American military family. Yep. And the thing is, it's a positive show. It would be a positive. It's a positive topic. It's inspirational. It's hopeful. And I think we need more programming like that out there. Um, I'm not a big TV person, but I am a TV person in the production sense that I'm a professional that does this stuff. And that's just an observation, you know, that that that, that I've made and the conclusion that I've deduced. I want to, before we change subjects, because um, I know we're going to talk about Henry's uh, uncle, but just because you're here and you're the only one who'll enjoy this because of what you do and the line of work you're in. When I worked in radio, they were switching from the Marty over to the Comrex. Familiar with the Comrex, little portable guy? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, you know how radio stations are. They they hate change anything, but when they do, they go all out. But some might suggest you might want to do a little research. At the time, we're having these festival concerts here in town. And they just don't even take the Marty. That's old school. Leave the Marty back at the station. Take the Comrex, Comrex, Comrex. Comrex is fine. When they were broadcasting in the morning, there was 50 people walking around, 100 people walking around. By late afternoon, when we're trying to interview Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, and you got 16,000 cell phones out in front of you, guess what doesn't work? The device that uses cell phone technology. No bandwidth. There's no bandwidth because you had 16,000 cell phones right in front of your booth. You're using this new technology that uses cell phone signals. The air was flooded. If we had the Marty in the truck, could have set that bad boy up. Problem solved. but. They put all the they you know it was oh Comrex is the way to go. Well, that's great until <laughs> your your bandwidth flooded with too much right stuff. until you've got fifty thousand cell phones within within a hundred yard uh, three hundred yards of where you're transmitting. Um, I have a Dave Mustaine story for you. <laughs> uh, I used to ride on the bus with Dave Mustaine. I went out to fix a, a lighting console on Alice Cooper's Nightmare Returns tour. Okay, back in nineteen eighty seven eighty eight. And Dave Megadeth was the warm-up band for Alice Cooper. That's so, a bit of a, I mean, hypothetically, it doesn't sound like a juxtaposition, but when the actual physical music goes, that's such a different part of the spectrum from the Alice's music versus early Megadeth from, you know, Peace Cells and Who's Buying or, you know, So Far, So Good, right, So What. Right. That's a huge difference. Great guy. He's real nice. But uh, now, Henry... Everybody, we know we've talked a lot about your father on the show, and you've, you've mentioned your uncle, and we thought what a better time to get a little more into what your uncle's contribution to what to the war effort was than to do it on the anniversary of D-Day. So I'm going to shut up and quit talking now and hand it over to you, sir. Well, I mean, I, I really didn't want to turn this into the center stage because RT's our guest, but I do want to say oh, this. Man. So 
this was my dad, obviously, but my uncle, my uncle Edward, at the end of the war, him and my dad. So he got a silver star on D-Day. What I'd like to do is read his citation. He was a Sherman tank platoon commander. So I will read the citation. First Lieutenant Edward S. Sledge, Infantry, 741st Tank Battalion, United States Army, for gallantry in action during the Allied assault on the coast near Vireville, sur mer France, 6 June 1944. First Lieutenant Sledge, a platoon leader, landed with the initial assault wave under intense enemy machine gun mortar and artillery fire. In the absence of his company commander, he assumed command of the company. When his radio failed, there was no way to give commands from one tank to another. First Lieutenant Sledge, dismounting from his tank, went along the open beach to four other tanks, giving instructions to the operators. Re-entering his own tank, he proceeded down the beach until it was immobilized. While lying in a relatively safe position, First Lieutenant Sledge, seeing a wounded soldier about 25 yards away, crawled to him and dragged him back to cover where he was given first aid. The courage and determination of First Lieutenant Sledge in acting with complete disregard for his personal safety in order to assist to the utmost in the assault depicts a gallantry that is a credit to himself in the military service, inter-military service from Mobile, Alabama. And my Uncle Edward ended up, he was a graduate of the Citadel. Uh, he ended up finishing the war. He fought all the way across, uh, got the Bronze Star in the Battle of the Bulge and three Purple Hearts. Hold on, um, I want to pause real quick. What you just read, if someone was watching a movie like Fury or a Hollywood production and the main character did exactly what your uncle did, there would be people watching saying, please, that would never. They wouldn't have done that. What you just read just is so mind-blowing that, you know, you hear the phrase, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Well, sometimes truth is hardcore than fiction. Yeah, like Jeff, if... If Ricky was writing that into his screenplay, people like no, that not that no, there's no what is he ramp that that's just insane, Henry to to think, and clearly, and we know from doing the research and reading books, those awards weren't just handed out. There's actually plenty of stories where people didn't get oh, yeah. awards because quote unquote there's too many being handed out for that campaign. So the fact that yeah. somebody witnessed that, reported it, and it was confirmed by enough other witnesses. To it to be approved and go through just goes to show you that that wasn't nonsense, that that truly happened. And that's just insane. I actually, when we get on into December, I'll read his Bronze Star citation because it, it's pretty cool what he got in the bulge. But John McManus actually, so when 741st landed on D-Day, they were attached to the, the Big Red One, the 1st Infantry Division. Yeah, buddy. And uh, John McManus actually wrote something about that, including about my uncle into his book on the Big Red One. But he sent me the combat action report here where it was actually a teller mine that Edwards Tank ran over that knocked it out. Wow. So it was it's pretty cool to see the combat report with a paragraph describing how they fired on, on uh, enemy gun emplacements and that kind of thing. And how old was he? He was uh, two years older than my dad, so... Um, I think he was 24 at this time. No, he would have been 23 right here. 22, 23. It's just, it, it, it's always mind boggling to think of what all these guys did at such a young age compared to what we try to get 20 year olds to do nowadays or 18 year olds <laughs> or 16 year olds. What do you mean? I got to get a full-time job. 
I'll, I'll settle for a part-time job at this point. You got to do something, kid. But just, it's just always so mind-blowing that how things are just so different and uh, just good to go. But uh, no, that's but continue on i just wanted to pause there because i didn't i didn't want to just brush over what he actually did because just sitting back listening to it as you read it's just like i'm seeing i mean i could i hate to take up the time to do it but i could read this little paragraph from the aar i don't think anybody would object yeah (laughs) okay so this was the aar it's got a lot of paragraphs here just the one says first lieutenant edward s sledge the second report able company six june Lieutenant Sledge of A Company landed at 0635 hours vicinity of Easy One with his platoon. One tank under Staff Sergeant Cart destroyed just minutes after debarking. Lieutenant McDonough and Lieutenant Sledge's tank fired on two emplaced French 75-millimeter guns on hill at left flank of Fox Green. Claim credit for destruction of guns at 0715 hours. Infantry pinned down by enemy machine gun and sniper fire from the same position. Tanks could not locate these targets from beach, but could not advance due to minefields. Upon assault of C Company, 16th, uh, that's got to be 16th Infantry Regiment, on this hill by flanking move, by flanking move, moving up easy one exit. Uh, let's see. Upon assault of C Company, 16th Infantry on this hill by flanking Moving up easy one exit four tanks, Lieutenant Sledge, McDonough, Sergeant Carlson, Sergeant Ryman moved west on beach to cover this advance. Tank of Lieutenant Sledge hit teller mine at this time and knocked out of action. Tank of Lieutenant McDonough hit in gas tank by 88 millimeter and burned. Sergeant Ryman's tank brought fire to bear on machine gun positions on easy one exit. One DD direct drive tank destroyed and burned by enemy 88 millimeter located in pillbox on west slope of easy one exit tank under sergeant carlson claims credit for silencing gun does not believe gun completely destroyed but did not fire further tank of sergeant carlson through track and temporarily put out of action crew evacuated tank under mortar fire and that that's the end of that paragraph that's a lot of action one paragraph do you know if any of the tanks in your uncle's battalion um were offloaded using the amphibious skirts, or were they all offloaded from LSTs? I, I will tell you, Don, that is a great question, and I, I can't answer it tonight, but if, if we could circle back around in a future episode, because so Cornelius Ryan, who wrote The Longest Day, or uh, Bridge right. Too Far, yeah, uh, he sent a questionnaire, and John McManus sent it to me. A questionnaire, apparently he had records of every veteran you know who was there, uh, and he sent a questionnaire to my uncle and I have, I mean, it's photographs of it. I don't have the actual copy where Edward filled it out. And a lot of those questions are gone into. And if I know we could talk about it at a future episode, sure. I'll try to like transcribe it. Cause you know, it's type questions by Cornelius Ryan and then pencil and then writing, handwriting, yeah. which is not real easy to read, but it is legible. But yeah, I mean, he goes into a lot of that detail. Cause it's, you know, I was saying about this earlier when uh, we were talking about the Eureka systems. One of the things that maybe I think we as historians and, and reenactors, we think about, but I don't think the general public think about, World War II, at least by the time D-Day rolled around, obviously August 7, 19, you know, when the Marines landed on Guadalcanal is a little different. We were still using weapons from World War One, But by the time the D-Day rolled around, 
it was basically a war of new technology. Okay, we need to figure out how to land these tanks through the water. I know. Let's put a seven-foot-tall canvas shower curtain around it. It'll be buoyant enough, and we're good to go. Or here's some new rifles. Let's drop a bunch of paratroopers, which, by the way, paratrooping was a brand-new experience. It was, you know, they had their, what, their first jumps in Africa and Italy? You know, so it was relatively new. We got these new Eureka beacon systems that they're tube-powered. They run off of some batteries and... Yeah, they'll work. So a lot of this stuff was done with brand new technology that not only didn't exist before the war, but the war actually made the technology exist. And the amount of effort and victory that came out of new tactics, new equipment, new everything was just astounding to think about. Don, that's the sheer guts of the greatest generation. Yeah. That's that's the common denominator there. It's the sheer guts of Ricky's uncle, of Henry's father, Henry's uncle, and so many others. Because, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it it's the motherhood of all invention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can you can test fit things all you want, but it, it takes somebody to get it in the air, put it on the ground, or stick it in the water, and, and you know, the baptism by fire. And uh, that's what's so great about this, because it was, you know, done by man. I think that's the greatest. That's the greatest part of the Second World War. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of technology that came out of it, and, and a lot of technology that we enjoy in our homes today because of it. But it was still the man in the cockpit, the man in the tank, the man wearing the boots uh, that made it. Now, yeah, exactly for those yeah. of you watching on YouTube or watching the restream later, Jeff is wearing, I believe, I can't see the bottom of his pockets. I think he's wearing the M42, or is that the M41? As 40, yeah, I'm, I'm getting ready for a wardrobe for, for Ricky's movie. So, <laughs> yeah, and you're doing a damn good job. The reason, <laughs> okay, yeah, I see the reinforced pot, the elbow. So he's wearing the M42. Now, if you think about it, hypothetically, awesome. hypothetically, one can make the argument that that was kind of the first real battle uniform because that uniform was designed for airborne. And we've talked about this in the past, D Day. It's just, it also blows my mind to think that, um, especially the infantry, they landed in their Sunday best. When they landed on the beaches of Normandy, they were their uniform with the exception of obviously their helmet, their web belt and their backpacks and their rifle and their leggings. They're wearing what their parents wore to work every day. They're wearing wool trousers, a button up shirt, sometimes a tie, a cotton jacket. And that's it. They didn't have combat uniforms with special pockets. They're wearing wool trousers, a button-up. They're literally wearing what they would when, would have been wearing at home to college, ex- with the exception of a helmet, web gear, some leggings, and a rifle. We're good to go. It's just that's the other thing. It just it's battle of necessity. Here you go. Here's a here's a nice cotton jacket and some uh, leggings. To keep your boots from getting sucked off in the sand. Good luck. <laughs> it's just, if I might add. Um- Jeff, that uniform uh, basically speaks to a uh, prototype and predecessor of what would now be considered the uh, battle dress, the BDU uniform. Absolutely. One of the most comfortable things I've ever slept in. (laughs) I was getting ready to say, I have that uniform. I have P-41s, P-42s. I have HBTs. That is, without a doubt, the most comfortable World War II uniform. It just fits in all the right spots. (laughs) It truly does. That is my favorite uniform to wear on a long weekend. I was thought I thought you were talking about the woodland camo BDUs like what 
we were issued in the eighties and, and nineties. That's what I thought of when you said that. <laughs> so yeah, I was probably one of the, one of the last guys to be issued a, a BDU uniform in, in 2001. Cause everything went, you know, desert. And right. And they changed, they changed it. Yeah. The, the I remember those and, uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. I still US. have a few of mine. Yeah, the green, brown, and black. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's that time of the episode. We don't have we, Ricky. We need to talk production. I, I don't have sounders. I don't have opener. I I need to find times, but we need to make a sounder for this part of the show, which is yeah. book reviews. What are we reading? What's in our library? So I'll put that on my list. I'll get into now. That I got my console built. I'll I'll make openers and stingers and backgrounds and bumpers and all that good stuff. But Jeff, why don't you kick it off this week on what you're reading? Well, I'm I'm still reading the book because I'm taking it slow because it's such a good book. I don't want it to end. Yeah, so I'm kind of taking it slow with it. Plus, I'm kind of swamped in schoolwork, too, for my degree. Um, but I'm still reading Martin Caden's Flying Forts. It's just uh, I'm a little over 100 pages into it. And I'm still at the point where the Air Corps just issued or uh, just uh, ordered, I want to say, 18 B-17B models. Oh, wow. So, it, it, yeah, it is really the all-encompassing of, you know, the Y1 B, or the Model 299, the Y1B17, Y1B17A, all that, and, and just how it, that whole project was almost canceled from the beginning. I mean, Boeing just kept hitting, uh, you know, speed bump after speed bump. They, they're going totally broke trying to prove and of course, the Air Corps is embracing it because the Air Corps is really trying to stand out. And, uh, you know, of course, this is in the late 30s. So they're playing the card that this is more of a shore defense weapon that we can reach out. You know, your coastal artillery can't reach out 700 miles into the ocean and knock out, you know, the threat from the air. So it's really interesting to see how the top brass and the Army is just like, you know, you, air, you fly fly boys are just crazy. We don't need four-engine bombers. We have this B-18 bomber, this twin-engine total abortion of an aircraft. You know, just totally flawed. But, you know, that's what they were sticking to. They, the Army's good at sticking to its guns. So it's interesting to kind of see how the B-17 almost never happened. Um, so so I'm, still, I'm still reading that. But I did want to mention, uh, how about a couple movie uh, recommendations? Um you know, over Memorial Day weekend, you know, if I'm watching TV, it's very rare. It's mm -hmm. either going to be a hockey game or Turner Classic movies. Let's and go Pens. Of course, through, uh, what's that? I said, let's go Pens. Uh, yeah, my Rangers took care of your Pens in the first round. That <laughs> happens. They're working on taking out Tampa Bay right now. Uh, That's my secondary <laughs> so, team. Uh, I'll tell you what, Tampa Bay has a fantastic arena. Amelie Arena, it's... Oh, I'm I used to do a lot of hockey, so as a broadcast engineer, and, and you talk about pens like the Penguins. Yes, sir. Oh no, I've done. I've well, I did. No, I'm talking about Tampa Bay's arena because Tampa. I live in Florida, right. so Tampa Bay's and arena. I've done so many Ranger games for Game Creek Video <laughs> in Legend, Madison uh, Square Garden. Oh God, yeah, and, and well, I, I've also done hurricanes down here. My girlfriend actually, she works for the Hornets doing basketball. She actually, she just landed over there in uh, at Heathrow. She's on her way to Greece right now. Nice, but wow. but uh, talking about Americans uh, 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 head, heading over there, <laughs> right? <laughs> her, well, her dad was an army translator in Vietnam, so anyway, so, but uh, yeah, all of the uh, hockey that's that's going on, I used to do a lot of that, um, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. What movie so, were you going yeah. to suggest, Jeff? What's that? What movie were you going to suggest? Yeah. So, you know, Turner Classic Movies had all the war movies all through Memorial Day weekend. So I just like hit record everything. And so there was three I wanted to I wanted to briefly mention. One I just haven't seen in a while. I haven't seen since I was a kid. And I kind of forgot how good of a movie it was. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo with Van Johnson and Spencer Tracy. Wow. I mean, when you it's produced during the war. Yeah. And, you know to show footage of the cranes, you know, picking up the B 25s to put it on the aircraft carrier. And, you know, I know they can use a lot of, you know, uh, standard stock footage from the air Corps of B 25s in flight, whatever, but it's just so well done. It's just really, really well done. And for it to be done during the war, I think it came out in 44. So they go into depth about the Chinese and how they helped our bomber crews. And, you know, we know that, and estimated, I think a quarter million Chinese were wiped out, you know, just because of the suspicion that they were helping us. Mm-hmm. It's just, and the, the kind of like, this is exactly how they did it. You know, right. it kind of blew my mind. So go back and rewatch that one. It, it's, it's really, really well done. Um, and then of course, you know, my son had one of his buddies over and of course they're all up and coming reenactors. So the other day uh, we watched the longest movie. I mean, the longest day <laughs> and you know, the, it is what it is. The longest Thompson. It's, it's, it's a good one. You know, if you got two and a half weeks to put aside, watch the longest day. And uh and then objective Burma. Mm, now that's a new uh, one on me. So uh uh I didn't know what to think going into it because number one, I'd really never heard of it. So I recorded it, whatever, looked looked cool. It's so much more than I ever thought it was going to be another wartime production. My man, Errol Flynn stars in it. And again, of course, when I first saw that, I went, oh, <laughs> and, you know, swashbuckling tale of Errol Flynn <laughs> killing everybody and wooing all the ladies. Complete uh, with mustache oil. Painful, right. But it, this is done in again in 1944. So it's a very mature Errol Flynn, he plays a captain of the paratroopers that jump into Burma, the army, you know, the army trooper, uh, paratroopers. And uh, you're going to see some other guys that you recognize, especially if you've ever watched Sands of Iwo Jima. You're going to you're going to recognize two actors from Sands of Iwo Jima. But it's just such a great story. I don't know enough about it to know how accurate it is, but it's just a great tale of a small band of paratroopers jumping in to knock out a Japanese radar station that the Air Corps refused to knock out because they didn't exactly know where it was. So they inserted these guys, kind of like these Pathfinders, kind of like what, you know, RT had talked about, just kind of a, a couple <clears throat> teams of guys to go in, led by this captain, played by Errol Flynn. And naturally, um, they they uh, they cannot get picked up because the airfield's, you know, swarming with, with Japanese. So it's a story of survival, as you know, just a handful of guys are trying to trying to escape Burma and having to march out of there. It's like 200 miles of terrain. So really well done, called Objective Burma. Um, so yeah, th- those are some of my my recommendations. And I, what I appreciated at the very end of that film was this story has no uh, has a conclusion, but it has no end. The end will be when the Japanese are you know, the Japanese Empire is completely wiped out. Because again, it's done in That's 44. Fantastic. So. Henry? The year for the war after that, my, my uncle uh, Chester wa- was in Burma in the army and uh, 
he lived with us at the end of his life, uh, used to work at the VA hospital. My mom, my mom worked at as a RN and he, he had uh, earned uh, three purple hearts there. And he used to sometimes sit around without a shirt on and you could see, I guess, where he had gotten bayoneted and this and that in his abdomen. Yeah. Speaking of Burma, yeah. one of the books I, and groups I got to reading up on, I want to do some more on, we all know about the Edson Raiders, but the Merrill Marauders, they, that's, yes. that's some good stuff there. But uh, hey, Jeff, no, I, talked, I already talked to Jeff. Hey, Henry, what you reading? While we were on vacation week before last, I finished up South Pacific Air War by, oh, by wow. uh, Michael Claringbold. This is a great series of books. It was supposed to be a trilogy. It's actually... There are five of them, um, but this guy's work is really good. Great, great illustrations, great detail. Um, and then I finished that, and then I'm finishing up this book, um, Touched with Fire, The Land War in the South Pacific by Eric Bergerud. Uh, it was written back in the 90s. I've actually read it before, but I wanted to read it again. Um, and it's, it's really good. It talks mostly about New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. But uh, Army and Marine action, but just just a really good book drawn on some firsthand accounts of uh, some tough fighting in New Guinea. Fantastic. Got to let us know when that wraps up, how it, how it all plays out. Hey, Ricky, what you reading? <laughs> what am I reading? <laughs> um, I, I've got a couple of books, actually, that I'm reading. Um, can you give me a second to go get them? Sure, I'll uh, talk about I'll be mine. Back. Give me like about hey, cue up his song while he's doing that. <laughs> if you've got Spotify, cue up his song. There you go. Uh, well, you somebody, may not be able to do it. Well, I can quick. do that, but somebody's got to talk now while I do it because I can't carry on a conversation. Oh, I think Henry and I can, can take care of that. Yeah, right? go ahead. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I like to talk about uh, Don complaining about spending $10 to send stickers to me. <laughs> When, when Henry sent me this beautiful painting of the airfield in Paleolu, and, and I didn't receive any complaints on that. I just, I think it's crazy. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like the painting. So, oh man, absolutely. That's incredible. And uh, yeah, so if, if people haven't seen on, I don't know if it, if it was on What's the Scuttlebutt's uh, social media or not, but. Yeah, Don cut us some really nice stickers, and and uh, I put a little message here: loose lips sink ships. But they also advertise for our podcast, so yeah, you know, for for all of our listeners, we appreciate you guys buying our t-shirts and and our stickers, and and you know, word of mouth, especially. Man, I, I I've had so many uh, people reaching out to us, you know, talking about how they missed us the past couple of weeks, and they can't wait for our next episode. And it, what's yeah, the old saying? Good. Leave them wanting more. Right. It makes us feel like we're doing something right. Yep. That's right. That's right. All right, RT, what you got? Okay. Keep well, it clean. Being an aspiring filmmaker, um, I, the, the thing that I've been studying most recently, uh, I've already read a couple of books on Stanley Kubrick. This is a really good book, Kubrick Interviews. This one right here. And uh, it, it's interviews that he did. And he was notoriously cagey about doing interviews because he hated doing interviews, okay? He just liked making films. But he knew that it was uh, a, an essential part of the process if you're a director of note, which he was. But, um, and then I read another book uh, by, guy, by Robert Rodriguez from the University of Texas Film School, you know, uh, Dust Till Dawn, 
you know, collaborator with Quentin Tarantino uh, and all the other stuff. Yep. Uh, that's one of the b- books that inspired me to get into filmmaking. Right now, I'm reading this book about Francis Ford Coppola, and these are some of the photos that are inside of it. It's uh, mostly a history of him and his work. And the other thing I'm reading is um, this the uh, script from his one of his most notorious movies Ap- apocalypse now which was really actually a uh, an adaptation of robert joseph conrad's heart of darkness so those are the books that i'm reading right now um i also have another book that i'm going to be reading this is going to be a big read um because it's really really big <laughs> sergio leone yes the spaghetti oh, yeah. westerns on yeah. death something to do with death so i have I've, I've obtained books and i have this guy who gets me these books he lives in eugene oregon his name is ezra ezra tishman and uh he is just fantastic he's like he's like a, he, he's like uh he's like an eichmann on on books he can find a book so obscure that's hidden so well that you would never think that he'd be able to find it but he can't <laughs> So anyway, I'm doing that and I'm trying to learn and do learn that aspect, the artistic and the storytelling aspects of making films. I already know the technical aspects of it and all the other stuff. But the thing is that one of the pivotal things about making a film is having a compelling story, being able to extract the performances from your from your artists, your actors to capture something worthy of being captured on film and being able to tell that story uh, visually. So I'm learning from the best by reading about them and studying and watching their films that I have over the course of my life. So I'm just trying to uh, stand on the shoulders of giants, as Warner Von Braun said, with the filmmaking thing and do the best that I can. Uh, Jeff is actually going to be acting in the film. He's going to be playing one of the Pathfinders. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and, uh, and and the thing is, we were supposed to get together this weekend, but got rained out. Um, we will soon, when he comes back from his uh, trip to uh, New Jersey, uh, we're gonna come back and work on throwing some, tossing some lines with the script. Everything will be finished with the, that that uh, sector of the script. It's a work in pro- progress right now. If but, I can, uh, I want to take a real quick moment. This is brand yes, new sir. to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. This is a little segment I like to call. Will we get a YouTube copyright strike when we have the artist on the show? <laughs> Can you hear it? Oh my God, that's my music. <laughs> I want to see if YouTube gives us a copyright strike when you're on our show. <laughs> I told him to play I don't mind. <laughs> I was pushing that, Ricky. That's awesome. <laughs> So I'll go back later and look at the stats on my YouTube, see if they give me a copyright strike for this episode. No, that's, ah, no Thank worries. You. Thanks for taking the risk. That's nah, no worries. That's no worries. I'll uh, go ahead and put a follow here on the old Spotify. So now I've saved you to my library. I finally finished up reading The Lonely Vigil. And something occurred to me, Jeff, Henry. We do a lot of content on here about the Pacific. But we've never gone down the route of PT-109 and John F. Kennedy. Good point. And so I was thinking maybe what we will do is I'm going to try to – I'm sure we can find somebody at the Kennedy Museum 
who could talk to us about length about that. Oh, yeah. And so Jeff looks like he may know somebody. <laughs> Actually, funny you say that because uh, a couple of years ago, I got a chance to visit the book deposit, the old book depository, the, the Kennedy Museum there in Dallas. And but when we visited, we, we got to talk to the, the director of the museum and go down, get a, kind of got a special tour and went down in the vault. And uh, one of the things that I remember, uh, actually, a couple of things I remember, but uh, like getting to see all the contents that were uh, taken out of Jack Ruby's uh, vehicle when, when he was. Wow. Uh, but yeah, stuff like that. But um, was a photo album put together. And, and at the time, I was actually reading the book, PT-109. I have an original, a first edition copy of that old paperback. Nice. And I just coincidentally was reading it. So, And I wish I could remember the names now, but there was one crewman that uh, he was, I, th- I want to say he was either assigned to another craft or was, was not. I can't remember the, the whole story, but. Uh, was he, he the crewman who was assigned to the PT-109 and they put him on the gun on the front that was basically um, being tested out to see if it would work? Because they, they no, the, briefly get into it in Lonely Boudreaux. This was a guy that was not on the roster. Yeah. Uh, it, it was something along those lines, but he was a friend or, or a former classmate of JFK. Yeah, and they put and him that, on the boat. Okay, yeah, but he was not officially a member of Correct. Lonely yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so because yeah, in Lonely Vigil, they said they're testing out like a 50 cal or th- they, they had a gun on the front of this boat that was not standard issue. It was kind of like an experimental phase and they put him on that gun because he had no position on the boat. Oh, okay. That's, that's yeah. gotta be him. So I got to see the photo album that he put together, just very candid photographs of JFK during the war, all through the Solomons. And then it went all the I mean, this guy followed him all the way through to the presidency and included in this, I mean, just like a scrapbook sure. uh, of just all JFK stuff um, was the invite to the inaugural uh, dinner, you know, when Kennedy was, was inaugurated. Of course, this guy got an invite. So getting to see original one of those, but just seeing these never before published, you know, just, this is pictures in a scrapbook uh, of JFK and the PT one and nine. Of course that was a couple of years ago, but I can, I can, I can see what I can do about reaching out to see if we can get some stuff because yeah it was just it was a really really cool to go down into the vault uh, of that museum and see some of those artifacts for sure yeah I'm that just, been amazing yeah i'm quick but yeah i was they the reason they bring it up in lonely vigil is because one of the coast watchers name was kennedy and so they're talking about there's a rescue mission for the other kennedy and so when someone heard that kennedy had been uh was lost like well how do you get lost and they realized oh it's the other kennedy and so they they go into that. So I finally finished up Lonely Vigil. That's a good book. Now, I think when, um, I don't know, a couple episodes back, we were talking about how um, when publishers find out about your podcast or your, your radio show, you, you you get books in the mail with a one-sheeter, and they're on the, uh, on the radio tour and all that. And I was talking about how I had one. And we also talked about how, you know, I was thinking about maybe reading up on submarines because we don't talk about much naval and sub warfare here. And so this this is a book I'm reading. It's World War II, but it's modern day because it's actually it's called The Fatal Dive, solving the World War II mysteries of the USS Grunion. Grunion, Grunion. And this is actually the um the 
admiral or captain. I just started. It's his son in modern day. They're trying to find it because this thing was lost off of the coast of Alaska. And all these underwater divers, all these underwater treasure hunters, the same people who found the Titanic are like telling his kids in like the early 2000s, where that thing has crashed, you're never going to find it. It's a waste of time, energy, and money. And I'm like on chapter one, I just started it. But it's talking about how they're trying to find this and so their family can get, you know, some some um, resolution. And uh, so far, it's pretty good. But once I get more into it, we'll, we'll get into the, the ins and outs of it. But it's one of those books. It's, it's interesting for me because usually all the World War II stuff I read is firsthand accounts of takes place during the time whereas this is modern day hey we're trying to track down our our father's lost submarine and uh you know his kids are like five seven and eight during world war ii when they last saw him you know they last saw him you know on um when he came home and then right before he got shipped out and then the the sub was it was lost per se because there was no mayday calls there's no it was just went out on a mission never to be seen again and so you know 79 years later, they finally tracked the thing down. So that's the book I'm currently reading. And, uh, yep. Well, you guys have anything else on your list of stuff we want to get off our heads before we, we move on? If anybody has any good intel on Pathfinders, <laughs> Pathfinder uniforms, Pathfinder gear, Eureka beacons, uh, RT and I would, would love to hear about it and tell us their story. And, uh, that, that's that's my big throw. Out I there. got a front seam D Bell helmet. You can was D Bell out that earlier? Was that issued later? The D Bell rigger helmet. You're the helmet guy. I don't know. I I know it's airborne. I I don't know if it was that earlier, if it was later on, because I I know that they they took the D Bells off after a while because they broke off. But anyhow, you know, I I'd, I'd love to borrow it from you, but I, I can't imagine what that shipping cost would be. So I don't even uh, want to go there. I don't know. Well, stickers would cost close to twenty. This would, yeah, this might be. Well, just I'll, I'll just. Jeff, he wouldn't even mention it, man. Don't worry about I'll it. I'll ship it to. <laughs> I'll ship it to your. Uh, I'll ship it to the um, museum. I'm sure it's not out in the middle of BFE. <laughs> It's three miles from here. <laughs> no, I was at the UPS store and like, like, yeah, apparently he lives in the middle of nowhere because UPS wants a lot of money to ship those stickers. I was like, oh, <laughs> keeping it that way. Snail boys. mail the way, it, the way I hear it is. You. <laughs> but uh, if you guys want to support the show, uh, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on sign up for Patreon to help cover those overexpensive shipping costs to Jeff's house when we send them stuff. That'll go a long way. Uh, you can sign up. It's a dollar a month. If you kind of like us, if you really like us, you can sign up for the $3.50 a month plan. And if you like us, like us, like Winnie Cooper, uh, you can sign up for the Long Arms Deep Pocket plan at $7.50 a month. You'll get free stickers. No shipping costs required on your part. And we'll also send you some T-shirts after month number two. And please, if you haven't done so already, please head over to YouTube.com. Look for Digital 410. Like and subscribe. Watch some of our videos. You can help us out that way. And, of course, giving us a nice review on Apple Podcasts and any other platform that offers up reviews and likes and all that stuff. And if you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. Best way to help us out is just share us with like-minded people. Uh, word of mouth is the way to go. doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to sign up for nothing. You don't have to worry about uh, shipping costs and all that good stuff. You can just send us to a friend, share us to that little share link on your podcast app, and um, I would appreciate the love. Jeff, you got anything coming down the pike you want to promote? Uh, no, 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 I think we get the, the, the most going on. Uh, just uh, and his internet falls on its face. To, 
and uh, what I said, I said, and your internet just fell on its face. <laughs> Literally, none of that came through, but that's all right. Henry, what you always have a long list of things you got going on. You're super busy. What do you got no, coming down the pipe? Not at all. All, all I'm going to say is we're. I've been talking to the editor of World War II magazine. She's working up my final edit of my article. It's about to be published. Uh, but the good thing about that is is in my little bio, they're going to put in there for artists, for author contribution or author contributor page. I'm going to put one of the things I'll put is co-host. What's a skull about podcast. Fantastic. So that'll help us out. And Jeff, based on the article on, it's a, it's a piece. It's going to be Ricky. It's going to be on army and Marine cooperation and inter-service rivalry. Nice. And uh, I'm drawing some little, uh, I'm drawing from some from some tidbits from my dad's never before seen unpublished manuscript to his book with oh, the old wow. breed because he actually met General Griner after the war and had dinner with him and got to be good friends with him. And oh, wow. G- General Griner was 27th Infantry Division on Okinawa when they went in to relieve the 1st Marine Division. But it, it but it, it pulls in some of that, but it also just talks about how. The, the thrust of the articles, despite inter-service rivalry, soldiers and Marines, when they had to, fought very well together. Of course. Is this specifically from the World War II uh, uh, time period theater of operations? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Because yeah. I mean, you have everything going from there all the way up to Urgent Fury in, uh, in Grenada, too. So, I mean, yeah, it's I just curious. World War II. And it's World War II magazine. That's awesome. Probably. And that's big for me, RT, because I've never been published in a magazine like that. That's before. huge. So, Congratulations. Absolutely. Well, thanks. Jeff, based on the fact that I can see you bobbing your, your head up and down, looks like your internet's back up. Give us your plugs again because none of that came through. It was completely crackled and you you were worse than Max Headroom, but you're too young to get that that reference. Uh, so I didn't really say much. I just, you know, just uh, being able to work with RT on this upcoming project, I'm just really excited about it. And, uh, you know, just love being able to hang out with you guys and, and keep the memories alive, man. That, that's all I've got going on. I mean, there's, uh, it's just such a pleasure and it's such an honor to, to reach out to folks and uh, to keep the, to keep this going. It's great. And Jeff, not- you're, you're so modest. Uh, thank, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you and, and, and for, for, for Don and Henry wanting me to come on also. So um, you're just uh, you're, you're a powerhouse, historically speaking, just as a guy, um, you know, and all of the different things that you've done uh, from the, Museum of the Pacific War to here to Burnett being this podcast with with your with your you know compadres and uh, and just you know it's it's been an honor to be to be on here. I wish I'd had more information that was pertinent to the this day, this longest day that we've uh, here on the sixth of June. But um, you know um, more will be revealed with research thanks to your help and uh, and others. And, uh, you know, we're going to move forward and, and, and put the story out and uh, add it to the American narrative, the American story behind uh, and the allied story of D-Day. Well, Absolutely. Ricky, I don't think of any better way to wrap up this episode. So thank you, sir, for hanging out and joining us. And thanks, everybody. And we will talk to you all next week. Watch us, Ricky. Watch us. This has been a Digital 410 production.